Matt here. Sorry, it's not a new episode of China if you're listening. But if you're after more fascinating stories about China, you are in luck. Our friends over at Radio New Zealand have produced a new podcast series called Redline. Came out at basically the same time as ours and is about Chinese influence in New Zealand. The story starts with the death of two dissidents on the road between Auckland and Wellington. It's four parts. They're all available now on all podcast apps. Just search for Redline if you'd like to hear more. Here is episode one. I hope you enjoy it. What what are the pictures that they're holding up here? What are these pictures that they're holding up here? Uh, there are uh, Dalai Lama's picture and. Uh... Uh, Mr. Wang Lecheng and Mr. Shui Bo's picture. Oh, these are the these are the men who died in the accident. Yes, yeah. yes. Figure on that. It's uh, what we want to bring to the parliament. Yeah. Oh, that was what you want. Yeah, I, I recognise these. These are the um, these are the flyers and the posters that uh, the men wanted to take to parliament, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Back in the winter of 2020, two carloads of Chinese New Zealanders set off for Wellington. They carried a petition and a message to the government and people of their adopted country. A message telling us all to wake up to the danger of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, here in New Zealand. Two of their friends, prominent anti-CCP activists, 47-year-old Wang Yejun and 48-year-old Si Wei Guo, were killed making the journey from Auckland to Wellington. Both men had taken up jobs as Uber drivers to be able to focus on the cause, and both men left behind family and children and friends. On this day, outside the Chinese consulate in Auckland, the protesters hold up pictures of their two dead friends. They have chosen October the 1st, 2020, to make their stand. This is China's National Day. On October the 1st, 1949, a new people's government was declared, making the CCP the only legitimate government of China. <laughs> Chairman Mao Zedong made the announcement before a vast crowd in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. Since that day, everyone became the, a slave of the Communist Party, and oh, that's why we come here. We protest, and also we, we memory those people who are died, are killed by the Chinese Communist Party government because they are evil. The comparison they make is with a very dark era in history. Chinese communists like Hitler, like Nazi. Yes, yeah, same. In the months following that day, it's a comparison I've heard many times. Not just from activists and protesters, but from scholars and politicians and ordinary people too. Inside China, the CCP has at least one million people locked up in concentration camps because of their ethnicity and religion. That is why they tell me the Chinese government is behaving like Nazi Germany and its leader like a dangerous dictator. What, what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing here? You're painting over Xi Jinping's face. Yes, Xi Jinping is um, it's, uh, stupid man. Yeah. So that day at the protest, 
Did it get pretty tense? Oh, not really. I mean, there were 20 or so protesters outside the Chinese consulate. They, they seem to be rather enjoying themselves. Yeah. Okay, and now what? Um, I can smell some petrol here. Are you going to? Um, are you going to burn the flag here? Right? Oh, here we go. Oh, we're on there fire now. Here we go. Oh. But there were a couple of things that stuck with me. There didn't appear to be anyone from the consulate on site. Remember, it was a Chinese national holiday. But as the group left, this camera swivelled and followed them down the street. So someone somewhere was watching. That's kind of creepy, but you can understand keeping an eye on people burning stuff in front of your place. What was the other thing that stuck with you? Well, they were holding up these photos, photos of the two men, the two Chinese New Zealanders who died. To be honest, I, I couldn't understand much of what they were saying. But one phrase had a real impact on me, the blood of our friends. I mean, these guys are angry and they're afraid and they think other New Zealanders should watch out too. Are they paranoid? The things that were happening to me, breaking in my office and a series of other events, they were designed to scare me. Or is the Chinese Communist Party out to get us? The choice is not between Washington and Beijing. The choice is between sovereignty and servitude. From RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions, this is Red Line. I'm John Daniel. And I'm Guy Espiner. In this four-part series, we're asking, can New Zealand continue to walk the thin red line between what some see as an evil empire? We know that they are slaves. We also know that they're being used to harvest organs. But others see as our greatest economic opportunity and the centre of a new world order. I do have a lot of respect for the things that they're doing. I mean, they have a vision. They are literally going to build a kind of platform from China through to Europe. I lived in China in the early 2000s and it was a really, like, interesting, exciting era that people thought was beginning in China. And people forget how important this was, but you had the first transition in the leadership that did not occur because the previous guy died. Ziming Mok is a writer, a beautiful writer. She writes fiction and poetry. She writes essays and political commentary. There's a very moving essay she wrote called Letter to a Lost Friend in Xinjiang. You can Google it. It's worth doing. She writes to an old friend, she fears, maybe one of those million-plus people lost in what China calls re-education camps, and others say are concentration camps. In that essay, she also talks about her grandfather, himself a communist, escaping China after finding himself on a death list in the revolutionary training camps. In her bylines, Ziming Mok is often called a New Zealand Chinese writer and social scientist. She was born in Auckland and lives there now, but fondly remembers the excitement and the promise of China in the first years of the new millennium. There was this great explosion of online culture where smart, young, new, rising middle-class nerds were playing a kind of cat-and-mouse game with the censorship of the Great Firewall, sometimes winning. It seemed like they could outrun the censors, they could outrun the state. There was this new movement of online activism um, and freedom of speech that had been absent in the past. And that, that I think, kind of made everyone think, OK, 
you know, China's not improving dramatically, but it's not going backwards. Maybe capitalism will lead to democracy for China. For decades after the Communist Party took power in 1949, China had struggled as Chairman Mao Zedong tried to align ideology with the interests of the people. In 1958, nine years after coming to power, Mao wanted to bring China out of its almost medieval state of underdevelopment. He launched a program of industrialization in towns and in the country, intended to take China into the promised land of the socialist paradise in less than 15 years. It was the great leap forward. But the crazy dream became a nightmare and dragged 650 million Chinese people into hell. It was the largest famine in history. Somewhere between 15 and 55 million people starved to death between 1958 and 1962. Details of the disaster were covered up at the time by officials and then repressed for years. But by the 1980s, China had found an economic formula that started to work. It was known as socialism with Chinese characteristics. Since then, the World Bank says about 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty. By the early 2000s, China had started to loom large on the New Zealand radar. New wealth in China meant new demand for dairy products and meat and timber, the sort of things New Zealand likes to sell. The relationship got pretty close pretty quick, and we felt kind of special. In 2008, under Labour Prime Minister Helen Clark, New Zealand was the first developed nation to sign a free trade agreement with China. And I think uh, this agreement is going to be looked at very closely by many countries as an indication of what China is prepared to do in an FTA negotiation. It's worth remembering what a big deal that was, economically and diplomatically too. We don't even have one of those trade deals with America. It was one of what became known as New Zealand's four firsts with China. We were the first Western country to support China's membership of the World Trade Organization in 1997, the first developed country to recognise China as a market economy in 2004, the first developed country to start negotiating that FTA with China in 2004, and the first to sign one in 2008. The political situation in New Zealand changed shortly after that. After nine years of a Labour government, New Zealanders have decided they need a change. They've elected National Party leader John Key as Prime Minister. Ladies and gentlemen, today, New Zealand has spoken. But the momentum in the New Zealand-China relationship didn't stall, it accelerated. I became Prime Minister in 2008. I thought that China was one of the big changing trends in the world, like technology has been and AI will be in the future and all that sort of stuff. I just think you look at what are the really big trends that really move things, not the fads, but what are the things that really shift the dial. John Key was to become a three-term New Zealand Prime Minister, but before that he was a savvy businessman, a former merchant banker and currency trader, someone who knows money and knows markets. And so I looked at it and thought, well, 
you know, it's pretty clear that the United States and Europe are going to be badly affected by the global financial crisis. If anyone can come through this, China will. And by the way, they want to buy a lot of what we want. And so why wouldn't we have this relationship? But you know, our relationship is very different from that. It's not like the one we have with a traditional ally like the United States or Australia, where we say, you know, we culturally feel the same as them. We fought the same wars as them, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a mercantile commercial relationship, but it actually works for both sides. And in commercial terms, it's been spectacular. Since the signing of that FTA back in 2008, New Zealand's trade with China has gone up by more than 300%, from $8 billion to more than $32 billion today. China is now our largest trading partner. And as China's economy grew and opened up to the world, their politics and society would open up too. At least, that was the theory that China would join the international rules-based order on our terms. Free speech and religion, the rule of law, maybe even democracy. And for a while, it looked like the CCP was slowly embracing political change. And people thought, wow, this is China's transitioning from a system where there's a one-party dictatorship with one guy who's the absolute dictator to a one-party dictatorship that is like, you know, collectively governed by committee, which uh, is, I guess, an improvement. I mean, people saw it as a real improvement. Looking back now, Zerming Mok never really thought that capitalism would lead to democracy in China, but she had allowed herself to hope. I was willing to suspend my better judgment um, and hope that you could have like a government that listened to its people and cared about it. The hammer wouldn't come back down, at least in terms of the structural leadership. Right, um, it was really hard for me to accept that. Is it a loss, a, f- a feeling of losing your 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 country, or what is the feeling? Let me just. Mm. I'm real bad at speaking when I'm crying. <laughs> no, 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 like this, and it's real bad. Let me just like. Yeah. At a certain point, I realised that um, I couldn't stay that invested because it's really just too difficult to have to cognitively cope with all the time that there's been such a dark turn in China, that it is now um, a country with concentration camps and mass-scale slave labour. The hammer came back down in the form of Xi Jinping, who became president in 2012. His initial promises of reform gave way to increasingly hardline tactics to consolidate power. Xi Jinping. It's a name you're going to hear a lot of. Already the head of China's Communist Party and its vast military, this ballot confirmed him as president too as President Xi Jinping intensifies his anti-corruption campaign. Since it began more than five years ago, more than a million party officials have been disciplined. Analysts say Xi's campaign is really about eliminating political rivals. He's cracked down on intellectuals, he's cracked down on all dissent, he's cracked down on religion, on NGOs, on so-called civil society, on the media. A vote 
to scrap term limits for China's president. The move clears the way for Xi Jinping to stay in power indefinitely and possibly for life. But for China, watches the interest is not in the system, of course, but the man, seen by many to be accruing more power to himself than any leader since Chairman Mao. So Xi Jinping really is following the dictator's handbook here, isn't he? Purge your enemies and install yourself as head of state for life. Yeah, if you go back to what Zeming Mok was saying about those CCP reforms that were supposed to avoid exactly this kind of situation, it was a false hope. Yeah, she has just bent the party to his will and rewritten the rules to suit himself. So the Communist Party has become a vessel for his power. And there's zero tolerance for any dissent. Absolutely zero. For a strong man, though, he's quite sensitive. Even Winnie the Pooh got axed for subversion. Oh, bother. Oh, bother. Oh, bother. Oh, bother. Oh, bother. Bother. China actually banned its people from posting Winnie the Pooh memes, drawing parallels between the cartoon bear and President Xi. Bother. But the darker side of this sensitivity includes the story of the real estate billionaire who got 18 years in prison, effectively for writing an essay, critical of Xi's handling of COVID-19. Mr. Ren, who was born into an elite family of the ruling party and was known to have close ties to senior officials, wrote in that scathing article that a Chinese leader, without naming him, was a power-hungry clown who put the Communist Party's interests above people's safety. So there is dissent, even at the top levels of Chinese society. But under Xi, the CCP is doing everything it can to snuff that out. A number of top Chinese businessmen have been brought to heel by the state, notably Jack Ma, the head of Alibaba. Yeah, he disappeared for a few months, didn't he? He tried to criticise the state-owned banks at the same time he was hoping to float his company for some record amount. In the end, he lost tens of billions. No one criticises the party. And the bigger picture stuff that's happening fits that mould too. You don't need to understand all the nuances of Tibet, Taiwan and Hong Kong to know that the same thread, the practical question of who holds power, binds those issues. While the West sees human rights concerns, China says it's about sovereignty. All those places are under its control. They're part of China whether they want to be or not, And it's China's right as a sovereign nation to do what it wants. Any exhibition of independence or desire for democracy and bang, the hammer comes down. China had tough talk for Taiwan on Thursday, warning the self-ruled island that seeking independence means war. Hong Kong authorities ramp up their campaign to stamp out opposition. Dozens of pro-democracy advocates were rounded up in simultaneous police raids in the biggest clampdown yet. So Xi Jinping wants to impose his will on Tibetans. China has turned to cultural genocide to seize control in Tibet. Xi has dramatically modernized China's army, navy and air force and opened up China's first overseas base. And most controversially, China claims almost all of the South China Sea and has created military outposts, flouting U.S. objections and international law. We are going to hold China accountable to follow the rules, whether it relates to the South China Sea or the North China Sea or the agreement made on Taiwan or a whole range of other things. 
That's US President Joe Biden in March 2021 saying the US is going to hold China accountable. Yeah, we won't go too deep into the international politics around this because we could be here forever. But as you can hear in those news reports, tensions are high on several fronts. Xi Jinping has said Taiwan must be reunited with China, and the Taiwanese clearly don't want that to happen. No, and China's projection of military power into disputed waters is another potential flashpoint for major arguments, maybe even war. The competition with the United States is on in earnest. The Biden administration has been elected. That's Kevin Rudd, China expert and former Australian Prime Minister. Uh, The 2020s looms as a make-or-break decade for both countries in their strategic competition with each other. This will be very much the decade, in my judgment, of living dangerously. Where does that make-or-break decade leave New Zealand? Here's New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in May of 2021. And notice here how she tiptoes through her words on China. As a significant power, the way that China treats its partners is important for us. And we will continue to promote the things that we believe in and support the rules-based system that underpins our collective well-being. We need to acknowledge that there are some things on which China and New Zealand do not, cannot and will not agree. Areas of difference need not define a relationship, but equally they are part and parcel of New Zealand staying true to who we are as a nation. So we are very carefully watching our words on China, saying, hey, even if we do disagree, it's no biggie. But that's a position seen as soft by some in other Western countries, where there's a perception that New Zealand's economic reliance on China makes us reluctant to speak out. Here's British Conservative MP Bob Seeley. He's speaking in the House of Commons in April 2021 about what's happening to Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And the problem with that, if we go further down that route, we end up, like New Zealand, in a hell of an ethical mess of a Prime Minister who virtue signals whilst crudely sucking up to China. So on that point, we need to be standing shoulder to shoulder with Australia. Now, this has gone as far as an unnamed senior intelligence official telling the Financial Times in January of 2020 that New Zealand was on the edge of viability as a member of the Five Eyes. That's the intelligence-sharing relationship New Zealand's in with Australia, the UK, the US and Canada. OK, let's take that with a grain of salt. I talked to a senior American military and intelligence figure who said that was very unlikely to happen. But the point holds... Our allies in Five Eyes are concerned about New Zealand's position, especially Australia. Yeah, especially Australia. It's our closest ally. They feel they're being bullied by China. And the Australian media, no doubt egged on by the Australian government, have become openly scathing of New Zealand's stance. In fact, New Zealand is acting as China's patsy, its useful idiot, its wedge of the West. Because China's not just punishing Australia for resisting this very aggressive dictatorship and showing you know, the world what happens to its critics. At the same time, and equally publicly, it is rewarding New Zealand for appeasing this dictatorship. It is showing the world what happens, on the other hand, to people who crawl to it. OK, that's just an Aussie TV host, a guy called Andrew Bolt on Sky News. But he's one of many critics. It clearly rankles with Australia that while it is being vocal, bravely standing up to China, New Zealand is largely staying silent. And that silence seems to have been rewarded by Beijing. 
Early in 2021, New Zealand's free trade agreement with China was improved and upgraded. And then New Zealand Trade Minister Damien O'Connor went and rubbed Australia's nose in it. Um, look, I can't speak for Australia in, in the way it runs its, its diplomatic um, uh, relationships, but clearly um, if they were to you know, follow us and, and show respect, I, I guess a little more diplomacy from time to time and, and be cautious with wording, um, then, then they too hopefully could be in a similar situation. That created another hostile reaction from Australia and Damien O'Connor walked back his comments. That's the phrase politicians use when they've dropped a real clangor. Yeah, misjudged, no question. The risk for New Zealand here is going along with what looks a lot like a divide and rule strategy from China, where we get played off against our closest ally. Although leaders Scott Morrison and Jacinda Ardern were doing their best to look united on China when they got together for their regular Trans-Tasman talks in mid-2021. I think as great partners, friends, allies and indeed family, there will be those uh, far from here who would, who would seek to divide us and they will not succeed. In fact, no point in our discussions today was did I detect any difference in our relative positions on the importance of maintaining a very strong and principled perspective on issues around trade, uh, on issues around human rights. So I really push back on any suggestion that we are not taking a strong stance on these incredibly important issues. Morrison and Ardern both expressed concerns about China's human rights record in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. China hit back, saying this was gross interference in its politics, but also snuck in a line praising New Zealand for being more practical than Australia in its dealings with China. So you can see what a finely balanced act this all is for New Zealand. Which is probably why Prime Minister Ardern is happy to do staged press conferences but wouldn't do a sit-down interview with us for this series. And neither would Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta, we asked many times. But former Prime Minister John Key is only too happy to talk about his support for China and we'll look at his close relationship with Xi Jinping later in the series. But if anything, Key's comments reinforce that in the Western world, New Zealand is out on its own. They did the Tory party conference in the UK recently, virtually, obviously. This is John Key talking to me in December 2020. And you know, Stephen Harper, Tony Abbott, Boris Johnson was on for, for a bit. Man, everyone's negative on China. So I'm the only one that, that continues to be pro-China. There's been just a palpable change in attitude globally and it's, and it's filtering down even into the New Zealand psyche, I think. In the psyche of Chinese New Zealanders living here, there's something far more profound at work. The diaspora population here is more than 200,000 people. But Xi Jinping and the CCP, they think they own those people too, here in our country. That's not a theory, it's CCP policy. Here's Tsiming Mok again. It's out there for everyone to see. It's, you know, it's on the website. It's in, it's in the legislation of the government. You know, they think that we belong to them, the entire diaspora. They have a policy that, that kind of sees the entire Chinese diaspora as part of their purview. Right, as, as um, people whose thoughts they should try to align you know, for the benefit of the motherland. And it's, it's, it's explicit, right? Take a second to get your head around that because it is extraordinary. 
You've got a population roughly the size of central Wellington, living in New Zealand, that the CCP regards as belonging to them. Tsiming Mok herself falls into this category. China's not technically my country. Even though the government thinks of me as belonging to them because I'm ethnically Chinese. She says that doesn't necessarily match the on-the-ground reality of being Chinese in New Zealand. And it's kind of laughable, though, to us as people um, out here in the diaspora, for a lot of us, because there's obviously a big gap between what the government is trying to achieve, that is what the Chinese government is trying to achieve, and what it can realistically achieve. But she says the CCP has begun to have some success. I think that it has probably achieved quite a lot in terms of um, setting up certain institutions, setting up certain levers of influence. Having started the process, they're unlikely to stop. And part of advancing the agenda of the CCP involves silencing dissent, even though we're talking about people who live here in New Zealand. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Guyan. Hi. Hi. I'm David. Hi, David. How are you? This is the third time I've visited this house in West Auckland, and today I've brought John along with me. Thanks for having me again. We won't say where it is, but it probably wouldn't be giving anything away. The Chinese security services are almost certainly watching this house. This is the old newspaper from uh, Weijian Chen's newspaper, uh, New Times Weekly. Half a dozen or so of these people, mainly men, but some women too, are at the core of the dissident community here in Auckland. They call themselves the New Zealand Values Alliance. The CCP considers them enemies of the state. They're passionate about New Zealand values of freedom and liberty, and many of them escape China for exactly the sake of those beliefs. These are ordinary New Zealanders standing up to extraordinary power. I'm mm, to the gyms mowing for the long mowing. That's my job. That's David Ding. You heard his voice at the start of this episode. He was one of the protesters outside the Chinese consulate in Auckland. David came to New Zealand in 2002. He's the local representative for a non-profit organisation of Chinese writers, although as he's raised three children here and writing isn't always the easiest way to support a family, he's had gigs at Pizza Hut and as a cleaner. Now he does lawns around West Auckland. And he was witness to the massacre at Tiananmen Square back in 1989 when China's military cracked down on student protesters with tanks and guns. I had been a student in Tiananmen Square, 1989, they killed a lot, lot of people. Seven of his university colleagues were killed there, and he says he crawled out from under the dead bodies. So bloody, so bloody, so sad. With the help of interpreter David Tang, on these visits we hear stories of why these men left China, some coming to New Zealand as refugees. This man's brother was locked up in China just for listening to Voice of America on the radio. His elder brother was uh, sentenced to three years in the prison for this, for this reason. And because of this, uh, the whole, uh, his family, the whole family was uh, dishonoured in, in, the, in the village and nobody wanted to talk to them. They want to know the uh, information about them. And to, to they came to New Zealand to escape this. But when they exercise their political freedoms by, say, protesting China's suppression of democracy in Hong Kong, the hammer reaches out, all the way from Beijing. Last year, when the Hong Kong issue uh, 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 came out, uh, all the, uh, every, each time they will send 
people, especially the overseas uh, students in Auckland University, mm-hmm. they came to the site and tried to harass us and uh, uh, even uh, beat the Hong Kong protesters. Student Weasley Chin tells us that he's denied what the rest of us would consider a fundamental right of living in New Zealand. In New Zealand, we don't have an environment to uh, make our uh, free speech. They say even community events are monitored by CCP spies. Almost every time when we uh, held uh, activity outside in the public area, we can find some uh, familiar face watching us and taking um, pictures. Yeah, we, we don't know who sends them there. That hasn't stopped Wesley Chen protesting, though. I see him at other rallies. Although he does take special precautions. I normally uh, don't talk uh, politics uh, on WeChat with my uh, family member and uh, some close friends. Sometimes we talk, we use uh, some kind of uh, language, yeah, mm. secret language, like, yeah. Like a code, because you fear that yes. they can monitor you. Yes, yes. Another one of these men is Chen Weijin. He's a prominent writer, but he pulls out his mobile phone and shows me how he can't even read his own article on Chinese social media because it's critical of the CCP. Chen Weijin came to New Zealand in 1991 and set up a newspaper. He called it the New Times, and he was keen to explore this new world of press freedom. Again, his words are interpreted by David Tang. Um, so uh, my newspaper uh, at that time was the first uh, newspaper, uh, Chinese newspaper in New Zealand that uh, uh, that printed by the people from mainland China. He says staff from the Chinese embassy came to the opening of the newspaper because they wanted to support it. But uh, not long after we established this newspaper, they started to give us pressures. Chen Weijian says he was given lists of issues he could cover and journalists who could write for the paper. They want my newspaper to uh, talk for, for the Chinese government. But for him, the whole point of coming to New Zealand and setting up a newspaper was to be able to publish what he wanted, so he couldn't accept that. He says things came to a head in 2001 after he refused to publish an article from Chinese state media and his newspaper suffered the consequences. The main ways to threaten us is they uh, contact all the Chinese businessmen, uh, enterprises, uh, uh, and warning them, you cannot uh, make advertisement in this newspaper. All the businessmen, uh, uh, business who related to the mainland China, they, they, uh, we lost them. Now that story didn't end there. According to Chen Weijian, he was then tied up in aggressive legal action that lasted for years, and eventually the newspaper folded. Meanwhile, another newspaper was on the rise, the Chinese Herald. The Herald Chinese version uh, became, uh, it's just like a, a People's Daily in New Zealand. And that's not a compliment. The People's Daily is the official newspaper of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Herald was a joint venture with the New Zealand Herald's parent company, NZME. It has attracted controversy for self-censoring articles, translated from the English version, to avoid offending the CCP. 
In 2019, NZME's stake was sold to the Chinese Herald. That was after articles, particularly from newsroom's Laura Walters, reported the Chinese Herald was under the supervision and control of the CCP. The Chinese Herald refused to talk to us for this series. And we wanted to talk to the Chinese embassy about these claims of interference in Chen Weijin's paper, but they wouldn't do an interview with us, so we weren't able to do that. And many New Zealanders might feel like it's all going on in another country because that language barrier and the difference in culture can feel like a gulf between us. But imagine if your Facebook feed, or wherever it is you get your news, just had these massive blank patches that had been redacted or censored by the government with its all-seeing eye, because this is what's happening now in New Zealand. Yeah, and that's the really blunt censorship, but there are more subtle forces at work here too, such as attempts to rewrite history. Remember the famous images of Tank Man taken at the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989? It was noontime today in the centre of Beijing when a man walked to the middle of the Avenue of Eternal Peace, which as it happened was already occupied. He walked to the middle and stood there. The man was alone, the tank was not. It wasn't just a single tank he stopped, there were 18 tanks and armoured carriers in this convoy, and while he talked to the crew and ignored the gunfire, he stopped all of them. We don't know how many people were killed at Tiananmen Square. Certainly hundreds, possibly thousands, thousands more were wounded. And we know this from the accounts of independent eyewitnesses and foreign journalists. But that image of Tank Man is where we see Communist Party propaganda start to try to change the narrative, while the West sees it as proof of one individual's incredible courage in the face of overwhelming force. The Chinese state broadcaster uses it as evidence of the restraint of the military and proof the massacre has been exaggerated by Western media. And this argument continues to resonate right up until the present day. We spoke to academics here in New Zealand who say they've had people stand up in their classrooms and claim the Tiananmen Square massacre never happened. It happens usually a few times per semester, actually, when I teach my courses, my undergrad courses in Chinese politics and Chinese foreign policy. This is Dr. Stephen Noakes. He's a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Auckland University. He's held posts at universities in China and Taiwan as well. Um, Someone will come forward and say that the Tiananmen uh, tank man video or photo is fake news, that it's a doctored up version propagated by foreign journalists who hate China and want to destroy it. What we now often find is students enrolled in our courses from mainland China are far more nationalistic than was the case when I started teaching at universities 12 to 15 years ago. I expect that that is in large part state-led. So in other words, this doesn't just happen. It's a direct result of CCP propaganda. Yeah, in the course of researching this series, we spoke with one Chinese-born New Zealander in her mid-30s who described many of her generation as brainwashed. She was a young girl when the Tiananmen Square massacre happened in 1989, but she didn't find out about it until she was in her 20s. There is a renewed focus in China on national pride. It's an explicit pillar of, of Xi Jinping's um, leadership. And that emphasis, that focus, 
trickles down from the the state and party leadership um, to those who come up through Chinese education systems. And then they arrive on our doorstep one day. And Stephen Noakes says this CCP-led activity at universities goes as far as spies gathering intelligence in his classroom. It certainly looks that way to me. Yeah, there was someone I did not recognize in the room. And that person was pointing a phone around and taking pictures of the slides and so forth. And it made me incredibly uncomfortable. And I followed it up afterwards. and I've, I've not seen that person again. This sort of thing is quite common overseas, and it's commonly called out. The Chinese Communist Party is poisoning the well of our higher education institutions for its own ends. If we don't educate ourselves, if we're not honest about what's taking place, we'll get schooled by Beijing. That's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talking about what happens in the US, and Australia says it's also targeted. Tonight on Four Corners, we investigate the infiltration of Australia's universities by the Chinese Communist Party through questionable funding deals, student activism and research collaborations that are raising red flags. We reveal New Zealand, though, has either been reluctant to speak out on these issues or it's been ignorant of them. Chinese New Zealanders, worried about the creeping influence of the CCP, decided they needed to get the government here to wake up. In July 2020, a group of them set out to drive from Auckland to Wellington to deliver a message to the Beehive. David Tang translates. That day, we all start from Auckland to Wellington, uh, but in different cars. There were two cars carrying the core of New Zealand's Chinese dissident community, and the men carried flyers, setting out their key messages. To express our uh, worries about the CCP's uh, uh, propaganda in New Zealand. But one of the cars crashed, and 47-year-old Wang Yejun and 48-year-old Si Wei Guo were killed, and Freeman Yu was seriously injured. Their friends have kept these flyers, and they lay them out on the table in the West Auckland house. So it says, wake up, Kiwis, stop the CCP. Yeah. Also have the blood stain uh, of, of our friends. It has the blood stain of your friends? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. The bloody, bloody. All this blood. Oh, bloody, oh, bloody. Is that really their blood? Yeah. Wow. Because because all, uh, all these flyers, all these printings uh, were in their car, yeah. and uh, uh, these, these are the flyers we, we got from so the these, accident So cars. these flyers have the blood of your dead friends? That's right. The two men died, and the injured man had to learn to walk again. What happened? Was Mr Freeman and his colleagues specifically travelling at the time of the accident, seeking to question the Communist Party's activities in New Zealand. Yes, they're on their way here. And was it more than an accident? The fact that that was an instant response of the people in that community shows how vulnerable they feel, how unsafe they feel. That's next time on Red Light. Redline is made by RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions. It's hosted and produced by Guy Nespinner and me, John Daniel. All RNZ podcasts are available free on Apple, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you get your podcast. 
And that includes our other series, The Service, which investigates New Zealand's spy agency, the SIS, during the Cold War, and the previously untold story of a raid on the Czechoslovakian embassy in the 1980s. Our thanks to all the people who spoke to us for this series and were so generous with their time and insights, especially the Chinese dissident community in New Zealand. The sound engineer on Redline is Blair Stagpole. Producer and studio director is Justin Gregory. And our executive producers are Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkins.